today on Podcast by the Bay. This is not Judge Persky's only instance like this. On the contrary, he has a pattern of giving, you know, really um, light treatment to uh, uh, offenders who've been convicted of felonies involving violence against women and sex crimes. An exclusive interview with Stanford professor Michelle Dauber, who's leading the recall effort on Judge Persky. I actually look at that and think that means our justice system is a failure for women because no one wants to be outing their perpetrator on the internet. That is not a thing that people want to be doing. They want to go to court. They want to have the same access to justice that they would have if this was not about a sex crime or sexual harassment. And we have got to fix our court system. Our court system does not work for women. All on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realty.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another Podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We're excited to have you joining us. We're excited to have you tuning in. And so, Patrick, I just want to talk about today's show. This is going to be about some of the social issues that are happening on the peninsula, some of the social issues that are happening in our communities at a local scale, at a national scale, at a world scale. This is big. This is this is kind of what we're here about a podcast about by the Bay, kind of engaging each other, engaging our community people. And so today we're going to feature an interview from a Stanford professor, Michelle Dauber, who's leading the effort, the recall effort for Judge Persky. And so, Patrick, maybe you can give a little background on who Judge Persky is and really what what happened in order for us to actually get to this point. Well, first of all, I want to thank Andre and I. We both have had discussions and wanted to bring these issues, especially since we've been seeing all the sexual harassment and, and abuse towards men and women, mostly towards women. So we wanted to be extra sensitive and make sure that we, our audience are aware that we at Podcast by the Bay are concerned about it. The Brock Turner case uh, was in 2016. Uh, Brock Turner was a uh, swimmer at Stanford um, University, and he sexually assaulted um, a young lady. Um, he was prosecuted for sexual assault, um, and he actually served some time uh, in jail. He had a six-month sentence, but was off, I think, within three months. Um, it was totally offensive to the community that he got such a light sentence. Um, Judge Persky is in the Santa Clara County uh, court system, and he's the one that gave the sentencing, um, even though maybe the sentencing was in line with other charges from other people. Uh, the attack was it, uh, very definitely that the offense was should have had more time. 
The judge recall, there hasn't been a, a recall on a judge in California in 87 years. Uh, so that's quite a long time. And it was actually a women's club in 1913, I think, that brought a uh, charge against a judge for recalling. Um, it's going to be exciting. Um, Andre reached out. He interviewed uh, Michelle. He spent quite a bit of time on this research project. Um, and we will also have a little bit of an, another side of the case, a criminal attorney is saying what he thought, whether the judge uh, sentencing was too lenient or within the law. Um, again, it was an offensive uh, thing. Uh, Michelle Dauber, the professor, uh, got, gathered the 100,000 signatures needed to recall the judge. Um, and I think Andre's got a, um, a great, great interview. I did listen to it. And uh, Andre, what was your take? Well, I was very honored and pleased to actually meet Michelle and actually have an opportunity to speak with her. And not only specifically about this case and some of the other uh, details to the recall efforts, but actually just the overall Me Too movement and really some of the philosophical uh, ideas behind it and, and really what's happening in our society, because I think that's some of the, the core issues that are happening, what we're seeing. And so Michelle actually highlights a couple points, and I'm not going to uh, I'll let you guys check out the interview because she really highlights some of these issues in her interview. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the interview. We're going to go ahead and present Michelle Dauber, uh, who's speaking on behalf of uh, the recall efforts uh, for Judge Persky and uh yeah, and so we'll catch you guys. If you have any feedback, uh, please contact us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Please reach out to us. Uh, we're on facebook.com slash podcastbythebay. And yeah, so and always check out our website, podcastbythebay.com. Okay, until next time, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay welcomes Professor Michelle Dauber and who's a Stanford professor leading the effort in the recall to, for Judge Persky campaign. And so welcome, Michelle. Appreciate you being on podcast, by the way. Thanks for having me. So for those, that, for those listeners and for those who are really not up to speed with the background of the case, um, can you give some history on actually what happened on the verdict of the Brock Turner case and really what led to the decision to conduct a recall initiative? Um, so uh, most people have probably heard of Brock Turner. Um, Mr. Turner was a Stanford swimmer, a recruited athlete, um, and he was convicted by a jury in March of 2016 for uh, a really terrible sexual assault um, uh, on a un completely unconscious young woman um, behind a dumpster at a fraternity party. Uh, he was seen by two eyewitnesses, um, he was convicted of uh, three felonies, uh, two counts of sexual penetration with a foreign object, and one count of attempted rape. Um, after he was convicted by the jury, he uh, was looking at a sentence of um, a minimum of two years, uh, up to 14 on those crimes. Um, and Judge Persky, who was the sentencing and trial judge, uh, made an exception for Mr. Turner. Um, he really bent over backwards in order to find a way to grant him probation and uh, to allow him to just serve a few months in county jail rather than that um, longer sentence. 
and the factors that he used in order to do that for him uh, were that, you know, he had been a very promising young man, he had lost swimming scholarship, um, and, uh, you know, he... Um, he would suffer some adverse publicity related to this uh, criminal conviction. Um, and he said very famously or infamously, prison would have a severe impact on his life. Um, now, ordinarily, those crimes are not even eligible for probation. This is determined by the legislature to be a case that is severe enough that it is supposed to result in a prison sentence. Um, and Judge Persky made this exception for him. This is not Judge Persky's only instance like this. On the contrary, he has a pattern of giving, you know, really um, light treatment to uh, uh, offenders who've been convicted of felonies involving violence against women and sex crimes. Uh, in another case, for example, there was a white, uh, you know, sort of middle class person from uh, Sunnyvale who was uh, convicted of felony child pornography and had just dozens of really, really uh, disturbing images of very young children, 18 months to four years old, little girls who were being raped or penetrated by adults um, when he was arrested and he was convicted of felony child pornography. And Judge Persky gave him, you know, just a literally unbelievable sentence of only four days in jail. Um, and uh, this was Judge Persky's own determination. Uh, it was not a plea bargain with the district attorney, um, and, uh, and it wasn't even in agreement with the probation report in some respects. So uh, Judge Persky doesn't understand sex crimes, and he doesn't take them seriously, uh, and the same is true of domestic violence, where he's let athletes go over and over again uh, with incredibly light treatment. So... Uh, the women of our county have banded together um, and mounted uh, a very strong grassroots feminist campaign to put Judge Persky on the ballot so that we can uh, give the voters a chance to elect a different judge. Well, thank you for the, the, the kind of the insight and the review to kind of behind the whole overall concept of behind the recall um i guess a couple questions and for the listeners that do not know and even for myself does a judge have really at their own discretion how to administer the punishment and what would actually fit for the crime is that is that part of uh, the judge judicial process so there are guidelines um that the legislature has given um and and judges do have a zone of discretion to act within those guidelines. The question is whether they responsibly exercise that discretion as, um, you know, almost all judges do, or whether, as in Judge Persky's case, he abused his discretion. And um, this is not just our opinion. Um, even some of Judge Persky's supporters have harshly criticized his decision in uh, the Turner case and characterized it uh, as an abuse of discretion. Um, you know, uh, the dean of the California Law, University of California Law School, um, who, you know, isn't even, you know, a recall supporter, said this was an outrageous decision, a terrible error, and an abuse of discretion. Um, you know, our position is uh, we agree that it was an abuse of discretion, um, and we think it is our right as the voters 
to um, go to the polls and elect a different judge. Uh, we don't think we should be stuck with someone who commits abuses of discretion. Um, so in the case that I mentioned, Mr. Turner, the guideline was um, was for uh, uh, two years at a minimum. The prosecution had asked for six years. You have to understand, Mr. Turner never expressed any remorse. He lied to the court. He lied to the probation officers. You know, he's an unrepentant predator. Uh, the district attorney called him a predator. Um, and uh, the state legislature has prescribed a presumptive sentence of two years in prison. This is a prison case. And uh, in order to give him anything less than that, Judge Persky had to find that there were unusual circumstances and that the interests of justice required probation. And that is where we just simply disagree and believe he abused his discretion. Um, so, so, so is it safe to uh, say then really on Judge Persky's overall, I guess, I would say pattern of uh, – punishments it's it's more consistent and it's more i guess the position is that really is 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 he really fit as far as in his role i think that's really the concept behind the the recall because it, i guess of the pattern you guys are explaining it doesn't really fit like it, it you know it's it's i would say it's not more just because of the brock turner case this is kind of an overall pattern i guess that's kind of what i'm looking it absolutely at. okay yes, absolutely there's an overall pattern in fact even before uh, Judge Persky came to the criminal court in Palo Alto. He was only a criminal court judge, by the way, for 18 months. And he racked up this pattern of treating sex offenders and domestic violence perpetrators incredibly lightly um, and just simply not taking violence against women seriously over and over again in all these cases we've identified in a short 18-month time period. So this isn't like five cases picked out of, you know, a decade. This is, you know, many cases picked out of 18 months. Um, so he definitely has a pattern. Um, and he is an outlier compared to other judges. So, for example, in that child pornography case in which that individual uh, whose name was Robert Chain had all of these, you know, pictures, I mean, really disturbing pictures of one was of an 18-month-old baby being raped by an adult, um, he uh, was should have gotten a six-month jail sentence, according to what every other judge in the county gives. Now, he could have gone to prison, but there was no presumption for that. And uh, every other judge in the county gives a six-month sentence for that crime. Now, we could say we think six months is too lenient for that, but it's a first offense uh, crime uh, for that. And so every other judge, we looked across every judge just to make sure that what we were saying about Judge Persky was accurate. Uh, students studied every other case that we could find that was similar uh, over a four-year period and found that every other judge in Santa Clara County uh, sentenced uh, defendants who were similar to Mr. Chain in terms of the crime for which they were convicted um, to six months. And even, again, some of Judge Persky's, uh, you know, supporters and friends characterized his sentence for Mr. Chain, the child porn felon, as being completely inappropriate. They said that it was more appropriate for minor offenses like disturbing the peace or public intoxication. Uh, one public defender said that that was, you know, really, quote, eyebrow raising um, for a four-day sentence. So he has a pattern. 
Um, he particularly uh, gives this uh, light treatment to uh, privileged men like athletes and engineers and uh, white individuals. Um, and he has done it over and over again. And as I said, even before he came to the criminal court, when he was in civil court, he presided over a very infamous case that some of your listeners will be familiar with called the De Anza gang rape. That's how it's known. And uh, he allowed the defendant's um, lawyers to engage in a lot of victim blaming and slut shaming during that case. Um, and the lawyers for the victim in that case, who was a 17-year-old girl who was assaulted by members of the De Anza College baseball team while she was unconscious, the lawyers for that victim have gone public and said that they believe that Judge Persky is biased in favor of athletes and against victims of sexual assault. Wow. Well, that, this is all good insight. And I think anybody who's heard the, the, the horrific details, especially – actually, I do remember that DeAnza case that yeah, – now that you're bringing it up, I remember it was big in the news uh, years back. And so that's that's actually very interesting that he was actually one that was actually on that case as well. Um, but as far as the Brock Turner case and just listening to the horrific details, I, I – and when you hear the significance, I you know, it's hard for me to understand – uh, you know the different levels of punishment. How it could be similar to other ones when 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 this one was pretty significant. So, I guess with that, has any? What oh is- yes, and even even another judge recently came out and criticized Judge Persky's decision uh, sentencing in the Turner case and said that he believes this is a retired, recently retired judge, Ron Del Pozo, and he was interviewed on a podcast um, and he was asked if he thought the sentence was too light and. Um, even though he, like other judges, does not support the recall, he just blasted the decision, and he said that he thought that it was a four- to six-year prison case. He said the sentence was inconsistent with the jury verdict. He said that the, um, the it was, uh, you know, that the Persky campaign was engaged um, in, uh, in another context. He said the Persky campaign was engaged in victim bashing, um, and that, uh, in fact, uh, he believes that uh, based on what he saw in his 30 almost years on the bench, uh, that um, and based on what other people get for similar crimes, um, this was a completely out of whack uh, sentence. So it's very hard to defend his uh, sentencing and the use of his discretion in cases. And people who say, well, you know, he was within his discretion are really missing the point. The reason we want to hold him accountable is because he was within his discretion and he abused it on behalf of perpetrators and against victims. That is the whole point, is that he had discretion and used it in a way that's completely outside of our community values in Santa Clara County and in a way that hurts women. So as far as... Judge Persky's perspective or feedback regarding this particular case and other cases, have we heard anything? I mean, has he has he spoken out in the media to really address some of these concerns? Well, Judge Persky hired uh, Donald Trump's Arizona state director to uh, run his campaign. This is a longtime Trump operative from Maricopa County, Arizona. He was Donald, like the first line on his website is, you know, state director Donald J. Trump for president. So it's not like you had to do any research to find this out. And uh, this is a guy named Brian Seitchik who works for like anti-immigrant 
anti-woman, anti-choice, uh, you know, campaigns. And so I think really the fact that he brought a Trumper on board to work on his campaign is pretty much all you need to know about Aaron Persky's attitude towards women. Donald Trump is the human embodiment of rape culture and misogyny. And anyone who would associate with a Trump operative and a Trump supporter in this way, um, I think, speaks volumes. And this person, when he came on board, devised a campaign that has been uh, actively victim-blaming of Emily Doe, the victim of Brock Turner, over and over again. Uh, people from the campaign, speaking from talking points that I'm sure were prepared by this Trump operative, uh, have been talking about how, well, you know, Brock Turner didn't really deserve to go to prison. The decision was really okay because, you know, uh, you know, he and she were, you know, one person said dead drunk. Uh, she was heavily intoxicated. I mean, they have continued to talk about her alcohol consumption. One of their people went on a radio show recently and said that this was, I mean, this was so offensive. I couldn't believe it almost. I mean, my jaw was literally, you know, sort of hanging down. I was listening to this. He said um, that this was he called these three felonies of penetration with a foreign object and attempted rape. He called them, quote, a college makeout session that went too far. So they have really tried to spread the myth that she deserved it because she was drunk and to imply that somehow this was a hookup. This was a predator who attacked a stranger behind a dumpster and he deserved to go to prison. Um, and Judge Persky uh, felt sorry for him because he was an athlete at Stanford like Judge Persky was when he was a younger man, I think. And so um, that's the kind of bias that we can't tolerate in our system, uh, the kind of bias that feels sorry for um, uh, a, you know, a predator or a child pornographer and ignores the uh, human toll that these crimes take on women. Well, you bring up the the fact of victim blaming, and I think one of the things I'd actually like to bring up is this recent uprise of the Me Too movement, and it's really kind of jump-started and assisted this process for social change, right? It's it's helped recognize mm -hmm. the issue, it's brought it to the forefront, and it's really starting holding some of these individuals accountable, like, you know, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Al Franken, Tony Mendoza. So people are being held accountable for really this these sexual assaults and, and really this harassment. And so, you know, victims, they were never listened to before and, and, and they were really afraid to speak up. And, and now there's, there's somewhat of a platform and they actually have some sort of support, which they never did before, right? You know, every time they would say something out in the media or they would bring somebody out, they were just dismissed, right? And, and nobody would really um, accept their, um, you know, what what they were saying. So... How has the Me Too movement really um, effect, played a role or really affected in, in the recall effort? Well, I think that in some ways, Emily Doe's victim statement, which if your um, listeners haven't read it, I really recommend. It's on BuzzFeed. Um, it went viral uh, back in June of 2016. Um, and, you know, she is a very, very gifted writer, uh, just a brilliant writer with an incredibly powerful voice. And in some ways, I think this letter was uh, almost a manifesto of the Me Too movement. And it it went viral, and it was very surprising. Like, there were, you know, 20 million, 30 million views. I mean, after the 
So after Mr. Turner received this incredibly light sentence uh, from Judge Persky, um, uh, Emily Doe said that she felt that she had been struck silent um, and, you know, really denied justice in a very profound way. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, when when we sent the victim impact statement off to uh, BuzzFeed, um, to see if they were interested in it, I thought, well, maybe this would make her feel a little bit better because it was such a beautiful piece of writing and maybe it would help other victims feel good. I thought maybe it would get, you know, 10 or 20,000 views and that would be it, but it would, you know, make, make her feel better. And it went viral and it got like, I think it's up to like 40 million. And I think what that was telling us was that something was happening. You know how when you have an earthquake, there are little tremblers that happen first, mm -hmm. you know, maybe for a couple months, but you don't realize the big one is coming and then it comes and then the seismologists go back and say, oh, well, these little ones that were happening, these that was because the plates were moving. I think that in many ways, Emily Doe's victim statement going viral were the little tremblers before the earthquake. And what we're seeing now is that there was something happening and women are really, really done with this um, situation of being denied access to justice. And that uh, cuts across the civil justice system, the criminal justice system, victims of sexual and intimate partner violence and sexual harassment are very, very, very angry and upset about not being able to access the justice system. What our campaign does is it uh, invites the uh, supporters and uh, victims to utilize the democratic process, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is looking at the internet and saying, oh, you know, everyone is victim, you know, all these victims are outing their perpetrators online, right? Well, why are all these women online doing this? Everyone's criticizing them. Oh, you know, the, where's the due process? Well, you know, the reason is that they don't have a good channel of access to the criminal justice or the civil justice system. Uh, these are systems that because of people like Aaron Persky um, are stacked against them. And this has been true for decades. And if we can't solve the problem and replace people like Judge Persky with judges who will exercise their discretion in a fair and unbiased way, um, then we will never be able to solve the problem um, you know, the all these people getting outed on the Internet, you know, everyone's excited by that. I, you know, everyone's looking at it and saying, oh, Matt Lauer, oh, you know, Lucy Kay, oh, Woody Allen, oh, who's next, right? And that feels sort of um, cathartic to many people. I actually look at that and think that means our justice system is a failure for women because no one wants to be outing their perpetrator on the internet. That is not a thing that people want to be doing. They want to go to court. They want to have the same access to justice that they would have if this was not about a sex crime or sexual harassment. And we have got to fix our court system. Our court system does not work for women. No, I, I think you bring up a wonderful point. And this is actually a question I kind of, we, we've kind of discussed at some of our discussion meetups and this is kind of off a little bit off the topic, but it's in, in line with this whole kind of um, sexual misconduct. Do you feel that this sexual conduct misconduct issue is more of a societal issue? That's something that's ingrained in our society, like we are brought up as this is the norm, or is it more something along to do with 
like maybe like a mental illness issue where there's certain individuals that just don't know how to reach their limits or is it maybe even something else? Um, I think that, you know, most of the research indicates that sexual harassment and sex crimes um, and domestic violence are related to power imbalances and inequality. And they are, you know, really emblematic of the inequality that women experience in their daily lives. But it's not only women who experience these crimes and these offenses. Uh, men and transgender individuals, uh, non-binary individuals are um, uh, also harassed. And in fact, uh, LGBTQ individuals are often harassed at a higher rate than anybody else. Um, women of color are more likely to be uh, harassed and assaulted, uh, disabled women more likely to be harassed and assaulted. So power imbalances um, and the lack of equality for women um, really are driving this, and they're driving it in the workplace and in the educational context and just in life uh, generally and inside the family, you know, across a host of domains. Um, so... Uh, you know, there are there are ways that bias manifests itself uh, in processes like uh, the Brock Turner trial that are um, subtle, and uh, so uh, you know might not be recognized uh, as bias. You know, unless you really take a look. For example, when Mr. Turner was sentenced, Judge Persky said this thing that I think is so remarkable that I I, I sort of can't believe it. He said, um, you know. Uh, he was talking about Mr. Turner's, you know, quote-unquote good character. And he said, well, you know, I think up to this point, he has been more law-abiding than other law-abiding people, you know, prior to his crime. And, you know, he's been high-achieving and so forth. And I thought, you know, what? I mean, he was convicted of these terrible, you know, crimes, really grotesque. I mean, if you, Emily Doe was physically injured. I mean, this, you know, she was... Um, you know, stripped basically naked, spread eagled. He took photos of her, texted them to his friends. He, you know, digitally penetrated her so roughly that he shoved dirt and pine needles into her vagina. He, uh, she was, you know, scraped and bruised and, you know, whatever it was he was doing to her was so horrible that two witnesses could tell it was wrong from 50 feet away in the dark on moving bicycles behind trees. I mean, they thought she was a dead body. And they ran over to see if she was still breathing. So this was not, uh, you know, uh, an ordinary, uh, you know, sort of he said, she said. This is like, you know, the, the rape by stranger danger in the bushes that your mother, you know, warns you about. You know, this was bad. And for Judge Persky to then say, oh, I think he's more law-abiding than other law-abiding people is like a, it should be in textbooks under unconscious bias, right? I mean, he's looking at this young man, and he is seeing him refracted through the lens of privilege. He's white. He's a recruited athlete. He's a Stanford student. He comes from a quote-unquote good family. He has all these, you know, letters of support, um, you know. Uh, but this was not a college admissions interview. This was a sentencing for three heinous, grotesque, felony sex attacks and you know it was treated like you know like a road scholarship you know interview or something i mean it was just bizarre mm -hmm. and i think that's how bias works and that's why we want to remove judge persky from the bench 
So I have one more question, and uh, I re- really do appreciate your time. Um, should we be, as a society, should we be paying more attention to other judges and, and cases that are happening? Um, and not so much just accepting what the punishments are given, but we should actually be paying attention what, to what's happening and really hold you know, our system accountable? And if so, how can we do that without really jeopardizing our really judicial process or the, or the law? Oh, such a good question. Okay, so first of all, the important thing to know about judges in California, like Judge Persky at their at his level, trial court judges, they're all elected. They're elected every six years in competitive elections, um, just like city council or school board or anything else. And in fact, um, people often, you know, will decide that they want to run for judge. Um, right now in San Mateo County, there's a, a couple of different people who have decided to enter a judicial race and challenge a sitting judge. And in San Francisco, um, four public defenders of color have decided to challenge judges who were rep- appointed by Republican governors. Um, and uh, they have said that they think that those judges are out of step with the values of the community. And as public defenders and as people of color, they want to run against them. And I think this is uh, exactly the way our system is supposed to work. Judges are elected in California. They do not have lifetime tenure. They are not uh, fully independent. They're accountable at this level. And so you can run against them. Uh, candidates can run against them, as is happening in San Francisco right now. Um, and I think that is a healthy development in our democracy. And there is no threat to judicial independence. It is the way our system is designed to work, just like the election of Judge Persky. Um, they are saying up in San Francisco, those public defenders, exactly what we are saying, which is this judge is out of step with our values. The only difference is that we used the initiative process to put him on the ballot a few years early. He was supposed to be up in 2022, and we have brought him to a vote in 2018 instead. Now, um, in terms of, you know, how do you get this information or should people be, you know, paying attention? Uh, absolutely, they should be paying attention. And here's another place that they already are paying attention, and that is in the sentencing of uh, police officers who commit violence against uh, unarmed, uh, you know, minority individuals. For example, these individuals are uh, almost never charged or uh, when they are convicted, uh, sentenced appropriately for their crimes. And, um, you know, this is another place where I think the public can very usefully uh, hold uh, legal system actors accountable um, and, and should do that. Because, uh, again, you know, those judges are exercising their discretion in a way that is saving powerful individuals who commit violence against the powerless. And that is exactly what we are seeing with Judge Persky and sex crimes. These are, you know, somewhat analogous situations, um, at least from the perspective of, you know, the desire to make sure that our, you know, judges are holding everyone accountable fairly. Now, um, you asked a, a really good question, which is, you know, how, how does the public get this information? And I think that the question of transparency around judges' um, records is a really good one. And I can tell you that the legal system has basically linked arms with the legal profession, has, you know, not wholly but somewhat linked arms with Judge Persky. And in part, that's a function of um, 
judges. Judges do not like being elected. They do not like being held accountable. They do not want the public to know what their decisions have been. They are, to some extent, I would say, hiding behind the concept of judicial independence and uh, implying that somehow this will, you know, that what we are doing or what's happening in San Francisco is a you know, threat. Um, they don't want the public to vote on judges. And so their records are very hard to find. Um, we had to fight with the county to obtain Judge Persky's record, and we had to make uh, multiple California Public Records Act requests to multiple different sources before we were able to even get a list of his cases and begin to read through them, which is a very labor-intensive process. So I think that the fact that judges are elected, but the legal system does not want you to know much about them when you vote is a big problem. And uh, we should be thinking about how we can get more information out to voters. I agree with that, uh, to make those elections meaningful. We should also not look just at judges, but we should look at other actors in the legal system. The legal system does not work for women. It does not work for uh, poor people. It does not work for racial minority group members in many cases. Um, it is an old boys club. And we need to figure out how to open up the court system and make sure that all people, um, regardless of race or class or sex or, um, you know, other invidious factors, have the same access to justice. And that means uh, from the sex crimes perspective for women's equality, if you have a sheriff or a police chief in your town that throws away all your rape kits and never tests them, uh, run against them on that issue. If you have a district attorney in your community who won't charge acquaintance rape, run against them on that issue. Um, if you have a city council member who has committed domestic violence against their spouse, run against them on that issue. We need to surface this and we need to hold uh, people in the system accountable. That's how we're going to uh, achieve the promise of equality for women. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Professor Dauber, for speaking with Podcast by the Bay and for your time. And really, uh, for the listeners out there, what is the best way to actually get more information about the recall and for, for the cause? Oh, please visit our website, which is uh, recallpersky, uh, P-E-R-S-K-Y, recallpersky.com. Um, you can volunteer. We have out people out walking precincts every day. We have a phone bank. We have text banking. We have rapid, you know, text responses. We have all kinds of ways you can get involved. Um, you can hold a coffee in your home and I'll come speak to your friends and they can donate or volunteer. Um, you can write postcards. We have a postcard program. So we have all kinds of grassroots. Like I said, this is a grassroots campaign and we would love to have your support and involvement. Thank you very much.
Okay, wow. Well, thank you so much to Professor Michelle Dauber for her exclusive interview and for speaking with Podcast by the Bay. We definitely appreciate it, and we're proud to really get the word out to the public and get the word out to our listeners to really the real story of what's happening and really some of the ideas behind it. So we do appreciate that. And stay tuned for some of the next episodes coming up. Um, We have some uh, great shows coming up. We're going to get back to some of our mayor segments um, and we're going to get to some Foster City segments as well. So Yes, we're all some good things coming up. So definitely appreciate your guys' feedback. We got a lot of feedback uh, next door through our friend Evan. We got um, uh, definitely some other feedback, um, just communications back through our emails. So, yeah, definitely reach out to us. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next time for Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to another podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realty.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.